Five years ago, having seen little sun during the Scottish summer holidays, four of the Rees family decided to fly to Turkey during the October half-term break. And so we left a cold, damp Edinburgh and we flew uh, to a beautiful, warm, sunny beach in Turkey. Uh, uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet, uh, a resort with crystal seas around beautiful golden sands. And I can still remember the smile on my son's face as he returned back from the all-you-can-eat buffet with his second plate of fried chicken and he pronounced, we found utopia. I did some research, found out that there was a, a church meeting in the local nearby town. It was a, a group of about 40 people who met in a small room. And before it started, I was able to talk with pastor there. It was humbling. On the wall behind the pastor sat the pictures of three men who had been martyred eight years earlier in Malatya, Turkey. In 2007, five Muslim men had been attending the church for a month or so, and they'd asked to meet to study the Bible that they were interested, while three Christian men in the church offered to meet with them. And uh, sadly, these men had not come to study the Bible. They bound the Christians, interrogated them under torture, and then slit their throats. And so there we were, eight years on from that event, sitting in the same country as Christian martyrs, talking with this Turkish pastor. He told us how earlier that year, in 2015, a number of Christian churches in Turkey had received letters proclaiming to be from the Islamic State, telling them to stop meeting as a church or face consequences. And they'd also received that letter uh, posted to their actual church address, so they knew where they were. Now, Charlotte Chapel, it doesn't face that. It's not seen as significant or important, really, in the city of Edinburgh. It hit home a few years ago when Edinburgh City Council first floated the idea of Sunday parking charges. I, I went to the chambers to make a case for how this would negatively impact a number of churches who provided social and community good uh, that we were valuing to the city. I was stopped by one of the councillors who reminded me halfway through my point, uh, Mr. Rees, we don't live in a Christian country anymore. We're just not seen as that important. But then sitting, of course, in a church in Turkey was a reminder that there were much more significant challenges being faced around the world. What would Jesus have to say to a church that is small and marginalized? With this letter from Jesus to the church in Philadelphia is exactly it. Incidentally, in the same geographic area uh, that we know today as Turkey. And notice there's one simple command in verse 11. Hold on. This is what Jesus says to small and marginalized churches, hold on. And it's surrounded by wonderful encouragements and promises that motivate the command to hold on. And so it's my privilege today to remind you of four wonderful encouragements from Jesus to hold on because of Jesus. Number one, Jesus holds the keys. See that in verse seven and eight. Before we hear the promises, here's a reminder to each of the churches who it is that speaks those promises. Because as we know, the value of a promise very much depends on the person making it. A promise of a politician in an election year, well, it needs to be have a fair bit of salt, doesn't it? It's only reassuring to the gullible. But John the Apostle saw the one who told him to write these things down, and it was an awesome sight. 
when he saw the risen Jesus, he dropped to the floor like a dead man. Uh, as he saw the one who looked like the son of man, eyes blazing fire, a, a voice like a sound of rushing waters. His face was, was shining like the sun in all its brilliance. But that glorious son of man placed his hand on John and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Are we feeling weak and marginalized as Christians? Well, don't forget who is really in charge. We need to take our eyes off our puny selves and our unimpressive churches to look at this glorious son of man. This is the one that Daniel saw in a vision who approached the Ancient of Days and who was given authority, glory and sovereign power over all nations and all peoples. He is the head of everything for the sake of his body, the church, for us. This is the one who is really in charge of history. This is the one who walks among the, his churches, the golden lampstands that we heard about earlier in Revelation, and the one who speaks these promises. And specifically for the church in Philadelphia, uh, Jesus tells John to write this in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. These are the words of the Holy One. And out of his mouth only comes what is true. And he reminds them, he holds the keys. Now, keys are very useful. Um, after a 10-hour drive from Scotland, uh, the whole family arrived at a holiday house on the south coast of England about 2 o'clock in the morning. We got the key turned in the lock, only to discover that there was a second key that re was required. And we'd not been given the second key. And so there we were shut out from our comfortable beds and two adults and four children attempted to sleep the night in the car, learning lovely, valuable, valuable family time lessons. The key of David is quite a key to have. It gets you into a better place than a holiday house in Worthing. Now, if you go to the British Museum, you'll find the Shebna inscription. It comes from the entrance of the tomb of this royal steward that we are told about in Isaiah chapter 22. He used to be the key holder to the palace in Jerusalem. But he's told by Isaiah the prophet uh, that he's been too concerned about his own legacy, focusing on building his impressive tomb for himself. And he's getting too proud about his collection of fine chariots rather than caring for the people. And so the Lord gives a message uh, through Isaiah to Shebna. I will summon my servant Eliakim. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be like a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. This is the key. To hold the key of David is to be able to grant access into the very heart of the kingdom, into the very throne room of the king. Jesus holds this key. He has total authority to give access or to deny access into his presence, into his everlasting kingdom. And he wants this church to know that he has granted them full access. Look at verse 8. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. There's no doubt about it. They have full access to come in their prayers uh, to this King Jesus in all their trials. And there's no possibility at the end that, of them being turned away at heaven's door and finding it shut to them because 
Jesus says it's not shut for you. He knows this church. Verse eight, I know your deeds. They're genuine believers. They're living their lives for Jesus despite the challenges. I know you have little strength. These Christians were not influential people. This church was not impressive or powerful. No doubt some were Jewish and had come to put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And they had found the door to the synagogue now firmly shut to them since they'd come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now there's nothing harder than being rejected by family and friends. It's hard to be mocked and ridiculed for your faith in Jesus. To be told you no longer belong, you're no longer part of the covenant people of God, you now are an unloved outsider. And yet despite this pressure, this group of Christians had not denied the name of Jesus and continued to observe everything that Jesus had taught. And Jesus wanted them to know that he saw it. I know your deeds. I know that you've kept my word and have not denied my name. He sees it all. And so to comfort them, to hold on, Jesus wants them to be in no doubt, he holds the keys. He is placed before them an open door into the everlasting kingdom and no one will be able to shut that door in their faces. This assurance is, is possible for all who have personally come to put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. My friends, if if we are trusting this Jesus, no one and nothing can shut that doorway into his presence now or prevent us from entering into his kingdom of glory in the future. Not even death. The opening verse of chapter 1 tells us he also has another key, the key of death and Hades. Not even death will get us in the way of getting into this kingdom. Death cannot imprison us. He has the key to spring us out of death and the key to give us entrance into his everlasting kingdom. So hold on to Jesus because he holds the keys. Secondly, hold on because Jesus loves you. Look at verse 9. Not only does he want them to see an open door, Jesus wanted them to know that a day of vindication was coming for this little church. A day would come uh, when those who thought themselves as the insiders in the synagogue will see that they are actually on the outside of God's kingdom because they rejected the Messiah. And those that they banished as outsiders will be seen for what they are, the beloved people of God. Look at verse 9. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. A great reversal prophesied by Isaiah is found in chapter 60. It was read to us earlier where after a season of being hated and forsaken in the world, God would make his people the everlasting pride and joy of all generations. Oppressors will one day bow down before the oppressed. The despisers will bow down at the feet of those that they had despised. One day they would see this and the truth would be revealed. Now, there's no doubt that it's going to get more uncomfortable for us to be faithful followers of Christ in our post-Christian society. Uh, three years ago, the Students' Union at Balliol College in Oxford, uh, the, the, the Students' Union attempted to ban the Christian Union from their Fesher's Fair. And while the atheist professor Richard Dawkins disagreed with their attempted ban, he still managed to tweet this. Oxford's Christian Union is a notoriously nasty and predatory group. 
Now, some of the students who attempted the ban said their reason to, to do it was to ensure that Fresh's event was a safe place and that the presence of the Christian Union could be harmful and alienating for some people. I mean, this year, we saw some directors within the Edinburgh City Council cancelling a booking made by Destiny Church to hold a conference at the Usher Hall, saying that some would find the speakers offensive and discriminatory. And the irony of ironies, this was because the city was committed to promoting diversity and equal rights for all. Well, it's humorous, isn't it? This cancel culture is beginning to worry many in our society. But we are potentially uh, going to have to face being shut out of civic society and out of civic buildings and to experience being mocked and even despised by a secular atheistic culture that wants to impose its values and worldview on everybody else. And so we will need these truths in these years ahead. Remember who is really in charge. Jesus hold the keys. And remember, there is only one kingdom that will last forever. And he's placed an open door be before us uh, for us so that no one can shut it. We will also need to keep reminding each other to be secure in the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's normal to want to be loved, to desire the respect of our peers and community. But we will need to remind each other it's foolish to find our value through the love and acceptance of our society. That actually it is uh, our value and our significance uh, needs to be deeply rooted in the knowledge that God loves us. Our true identity um, is laid out at the very start of the book of Revelation. It starts this way, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a profound truth. It was taught to me at Sunday school. Maybe it was taught to you too. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. It's not just children that need this. We need this as adults. Being loved by God is more valuable than being loved by the world. And I think that affects everything. I studied at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. And I spent my final year as a student minister working at the Department of Evangelism with an evangelist called John Chapman, or Chapo. He's now in glory. But I... When he used to teach evangelism, he would stress how important it was that you were clear in your mind that you are loved and accepted by God. Otherwise, you would never open your mouth to talk about Jesus. You see, one of our big fears that holds us back from speaking about Jesus to people is that they'll reject what we're saying. And if they reject what, what we're saying, it makes us feel as if we are being rejected, that we're not important or valuable either. But when our security is rooted in the love of Jesus, rather than what other people think about us, well, then it will free us up to share the good news about Jesus, however they might respond. And even if people should judge us fools, a day will come when even the mockers and despisers will see and acknowledge that we are the loved people of God. So hold on. Jesus loves you. Third reason. Hold on, because Jesus will keep you. Have a look at verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. As Christian leaders, uh, 
we need these truths to keep our heads and strengthen our resolve for the years ahead. But I think the whole congregation need to have this as well. Verse 10, Jesus has told us that there will be periodic times of intense trials and difficulties. Trials that will impact the world and so will press in on the church. I don't think verse 10 is a promise that we'll be kept from difficulty. But I think it's a promise that we will be kept from apostasy as we go through these difficult days. So in recent years, we've seen the rise and the fall of Islamic State and various Islamic terrorist groups bringing about devastation in parts of Syria, Iraq and neighboring regions. And that's profoundly affected many Christian communities. There will still be testing trials ahead. We still live in times when faithful pastors can be tortured and killed for their Christian faith. These are very fearful possibilities. But as we patiently endure these trials and remain unashamed of Christ and his word, he promises to keep hold of us. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you, he promises. Fourth reason. Hold on because Jesus will soon come with his reward. That's what it says in verses 11 and 12. Uh, this is how Jesus closes his letter to the church in Philadelphia. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is the message that the book of Revelation starts and ends with. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, it says in chapter 1. In chapter 22, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Now, soon and 2,000 years do not seem to go together. But it felt like that in the first century. Remember what Peter says in his second letter. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. Where is this coming? He promised. And then he reminds them and us. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And so when you think about it that way, then we've merely started on day three in history. And don't forget, in the Bible, exciting things tend to happen on the third day. For the oppressed, struggling church in Turkey, for the weak, marginalised churches in the UK, Jesus would remind us, I am coming soon. We mustn't allow opponents to discourage us. We must, mustn't allow their mockery of Christ and his word take away our confidence in him. Suddenly, in the middle of everyday life, he will visibly return in glory and he's coming with his reward. So hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Notice he's returning with your crown. It's described in chapter two as the crown of life and it is awarded to all who will hold on. To all those who overcome the trials and setbacks of this world by keeping hold of Christ and his promises, they will get this crown of eternal life. Is it worth it? Jesus says, yes, it's worth it. Faithfully living for him will be worth it. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Our churches may look feeble, unimpressive and insignificant today, but the truth will be revealed on that day. Weak churches will be revealed as strong pillars in God's temple. Our church, along with others in Edinburgh and around the world, will be an integral part of the new creation with God, where God dwells amongst his people. 
And in a culture with lots of, where in lots of little ways we're reminded that we do not belong, Jesus wants us to know that we will belong there. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus, Jesus will write three things on us. Now pause for a moment. Why do we write on things? I've acquired quite a few books over the years and occasionally my staff team come into my room and they see a book and they ask if they can borrow it. I'm happy to oblige, but before they take them away, do you know what I do? I write my name in the book. Why do I do that? Well, they mean well, they're busy people, and perhaps it may slip their mind. And a few months later, I might be sitting in their room and I spot a book and I say, oh, is that my book? And they say, oh no, it's not your book. And all I need to do is to go up, take it off the shelf, open it and see if my name's in it. For that will reveal who it belongs to and where it belongs back in my room. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus seals and marks us. I will write on them the name of my God. We belong to God. And, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. See, we've been granted permanent residency in the city of God. This is the home destination where we belong. And all of this is ours because Jesus owns us. I will also write on them my new name. My friends, because of Jesus, we belong there. He holds the keys. He loves you. He will keep you. And he will come soon with his reward. So it's worth it. It's worth it to obey his word, to be unashamed of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And so please listen to Jesus today. Hold on.